We all know the difference between song lyrics, biographies, and newspaper op-eds. So how come when we read the Bible, literary genre fades into the background or even gets ignored altogether? What difference does it make? This is the Bible Reset Podcast brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. Goodwin, joined by Paul Caminiti and Glenn Powell. And today we're excited to welcome Dr. Janine Brown to talk with us about the importance of literary genre in understanding the Bible. Dr. Brown is a professor of New Testament at Bethel Seminary and a member of the NIV Committee on Bible Translation, also known as the CBT. She's the author of multiple books and commentaries, including Scripture as Communication, as well as her most recent book, The Gospels as Stories. Janine, thanks so much for joining us. So glad to be with you all. Janine, it's uh, it's fun to see you again. Um, back in the day when I was working with Biblica and you, of course, were on the Committee for Bible mm-hmm. Translation for the NIV, and I presume you still are. I am. So it was fun to see you at least once a year in those days. And uh, it was fun for me to always sit in on those meetings, at least for one day of your your full week, typically, and to listen and watch as real Bible translators were doing their work. So it was fun to see you in action and and get to know you, and sometimes at other meetings too, when there were NIV things happening. So um, tell us just for a moment about if there's something short you can say about scripture, genre, and Bible translation. Does it affect translation in any way? That's a great question. Um, It does. Uh, uh, Various genres, I'll still give a very particular example. yeah, the, the genre of poetry, um, and, and we know this from our own experience in English poetry, can uses a lot of, um, uses lot, word, many words, so synonyms, many different synonyms for a single idea. It also can use language that's a bit more archaic, that has a little higher register. So when we're translating a term, and we notice it's in poetry and not in prose, that does impact po- the possibilities for translation. Um, so uh, we can maybe be more comfortable with a, a bit more archaic term if we're trying to look at terms that are running, uh, um, falling out of usage across the Bible. If it's in poetry, we might keep that English term. This is a question of English versus uh, original meaning. Of course, we're always attentive to original meaning. But if an English word has been used in the NIV and it's falling out of usage and we look in poetry and go, well, it, it can remain there because there's this higher register, the assumption of of broader use of language in terms of many uh, synonyms for a single idea. Um, so that's just one small example of paying attention to genre. So also paying attention to what genre we're in as we're translating. It always doesn't always make a huge difference, um, but I think in some cases the choice of word uh, can be impacted. Yeah, that's great. And I think you mentioned something there that I think we'll we'll be getting back to throughout our session today, and that is, what difference does all this make for regular Bible readers of English Bibles, people who are never going to be looking at original languages? And I know in, in certain genres, some of this stuff is subtle and can be seen more easily if you know the original language, but we're we're going to be tilting toward how did the, how does this all this impact regular Bible readers of a of a good English translation? 
And why is it important for that kind of reader to be aware of the kind of book that they're reading mm -hmm. uh, wherever they are in the Bible? So we'll get back to that. Absolutely. Sounds good. Janine, one of our customs with uh, guests that we have is to ask them about their own personal mm -hmm. Bible experience. We often say that nobody wakes up one morning suddenly enchanted by the Bible. <laughs> so at some point it got a hold of you personally. Obviously, it's gotten a hold of you professionally as well. But mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit about that journey? Absolutely. Um, my parents and, and my church of origin got me hooked. So, you know, it wasn't my own endeavor at that point. Um, I knew from a young age, this was a relevant book for me. This was a special book um, that I should st study it and read it. I was in, uh, most people know Awanas. I was in something called Jet Cadets. So we are Jet Cadets for Jesus. We are pilots <laughs> for the Lord. There was a theme song wow. and there was memorization and there was finding the passage kind of drills. And I just loved all that. I loved studying. I think I loved learning more um, studying the, the Bible. Um, so my first hook was that whole context, and I'm so grateful for that context. Um, uh, I was rehooked at a few, few points. Um, I, in my um, college years, I uh, um, was part of University Christian Fellowship. So um, this organization that helped me study the Bible, and, and in a new way, um, we did things called manuscript studies, where they'd send you in the mail. This is 1982. Um, they send in a mail, a type written or typed version of Philippians or Acts or Habakkuk. All of these came in the mail to me. And we'd study the, the whole text from beginning to end. And that was, in my um, perspective, revolutionary because, because it was taking holes. Biblical books, Glenn, you'll appreciate this, right, with your work and helping people really think about the holes of a biblical book. Um, we studied the text as a whole. So Philippians and Habakkuk and Matthew. And um, that was revolutionary for me because I'd always understood the Bible was really good at communicating in its little bits. Little bits is what we had to work with. We can mix them all together and we can throw them up in the air and bring them back down and they come in a different order and it didn't matter because little bits were inspired. And while I still believe in inspiration of all of scripture, the way I understand how we um, interpret well is really on that whole book level. And a third time I was hooked was when I got to seminary um, and both studied the original languages, which I knew was going to be a hook because I wanted to learn Greek so badly, um, but also found out that his history, the historical contextual um, backdrop to scripture came alive in amazing ways to me at seminary. So lots of hooks along the way. Hmm. That's very cool. And um, just just a commentary on the manuscripts that you received mm. from University Press. If I'm not mistaken, from what I've heard, they actually came without chapters and verses. Is that right? I think so. I think they tried to remove all of those. Certainly headings were gone. Might have had chapter numbers, but I think they took all the verse numbers out. So moving toward, Glenn, your, your suggestion of let's just really think about this much more organically, like we would read anything else. Not because the yeah. Bible is just like everything else, but because it's not less than literature, it's more than just literature to us. But yeah. yeah, that's a great way to put it. I love that. Not less than literature. It's literature and other things you could mention like Revelation, but uh, it is literature. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So that's a great way to say it. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think for some of us, we hear literary genre and, you know, it automatically triggers PTSD from <laughs> high school English class or our eyeballs roll back in our head. And, you know, it's all just getting too academic for me. Like, can you just give me the Bible? Um, but can you give us, you know, we could probably take this whole podcast on this question alone, but can you give us an overview of why an awareness and an understanding of various literary genres in the Bible is critical for understanding the Bible? Yes. Um, we so automatically do this in our own context. And I think my first goal with students is to help them understand that they swivel and shift and their genre expectation changes and they move and do a different strategy for reading. As even, the, you know, traditionally, when you read through a newspaper with all these different genres, you can't quite use that illustration much anymore. Um, but we, we, we know um, when we're moving from an op-ed piece to a novel, to a poem, to um, a newspaper article or a um, news item on the internet. Uh, we, and, and we switch our strategies. We switch what we're going to expect. And so far, a strategy for reading shifts. because And we do that all very organically because we know, number one, what those genres entail in our own context. We know what, what, um, what has guided the writer to what should guide the reader. Um, uh, so we know that intuitively. And so then we apply it really intuitively. So when we come to the Bible, um, we have a couple roadblocks, but they're not insurmountable. One is that we, um, we don't know necessarily the parameters of the literary genres of the Bible. Biblical poetry in the Old Testament, Hebrew poetry, um, you know, isn't just like English poetry. There's something called parallelism that kind of guides its cadence. And if we don't know anything about that, we won't really read as well as if we do know something about it. Not that we can't understand. It's that it'll take a little more work um, and it won't, it's not intuitive to us. Um, so, uh, that's one roadblock. It's just knowing what these different things are. I mean, a revelation apocalyptic, I don't have that on my shelf in my library behind me. So I have to learn more about what Jewish apocalyptics is. Um, other hurdle I think though, is that we, the way we've read the Bible is very much monochromatic. We've read it as if it's all the same thing. It's all revelation, right? It's all God's word, right? So we read it the same. No, no, because it's not less than literature, uh, or it's, it's 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 literature. It might be more than literature, but not less than literature. I think I said that correctly. Um, so we, this kind of monochromatic way of reading, because it's the Bible, I think we need to get past that. That's just that's a. I mean that's 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 a young person's way of understanding that when they're first growing up, right? It's all is the same. It's all put in the same book that kind of makes it look like it's all the same kind of writing, but it's different. And we can tell that good translations um, will highlight poetry differently than prose. I mean, ideally, that's what we want to see, I think. Um, and um, that helps us remember that we're reading now something different within the same book of Revelation, book of what has been revealed. It's interesting. I, I was thinking about your earlier point about first learning the Bible in smaller pieces, and then your introduction to university manuscript studies. Um, I guess one point related to genre would be that uh, when you're reading a verse, it's a lot harder, perhaps, to tell what genre it is versus if you're reading a whole book, especially if you're seeing it formatted in something like a single column where the genre tends to jump off the page to you visually because you can just see 
that it's yeah. a different kind of writing. Mm -hmm. But this these things are kind of connected, I would say. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And the small bits thing, genre fades when we're into the scripture and it's small bits, or when yeah. we think of scripture and it's small bits. Genre just fades away as unimportant. And But when you're on a whole book level, you have to say, what in the world am I reading? If I'm reading Ruth, four chapters, what is this? If I'm reading Amos, I don't know how many chapters, I'm not an Testament scholar, but you know, it, 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 it is set up poetically, but it's also not like poetry, like a psalm. Um, it's not, you know, little stanzas, but there are some stanzas there, but it, you know, it, 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 it reads differently. I mean, something different than that. Um, so I think the little bits piece gets in the way of pressing us to ask about genre, even though, of course, we have genres within genres. You start out um, Matthew and it's a narrative yeah. and that, yep, there's a genealogy there. That's a subgenre. And we'll read it differently or we'll just skip it because we don't think it's important. <laughs> right, our right. Context, we don't think genealogies are all that important. They're really essential, important in Jewish uh, and ancient, the ancient world, but also the ancient Jewish world. So knowing what we're reading will really help us know, why does Matthew start with a genealogy? Mm. That's a really good question to ask. Right. In your book, um, Scripture as Communication, which, by the way, I would recommend to all our listeners because it's such an interesting idea that the Scripture, you know, we think of it as God's Word. We have all these ways that we describe it. But you're focused on the idea that Scripture is a communicator. It communicates to us, and it does that in different ways. And you have a whole chapter there on literary genre. And I want to talk about that for just a little bit. And that is where you identify um, not all the subgenres, but the three major genres in the Bible. And if you could just briefly kind of um, talk us through that, how do they work differently to communicate to us um, as poetry, as narrative, and then as letters or epistles? And what distinguishes them from each other? And um, how do they work? How do they do the work of communication in a particular way as that genre? I will be happy to do that. Chapter 7 of Scripture's Communication. I call them the three biggies. Yeah. If I call them that in the book or not. But, um, and you could also add apocalyptic literature, Torah or law. You know, they're, they're, and th those are big and important. Sure. But, um, I wanted to get to the heart of it quickly and help give a lot of tools for much of scripture without writing a whole book on genre, which you could do. There's right. lots of good stuff out there on that topic. Um, so I asked the question in that chapter of how these genres communicate. How do genres communicate? Which, which is a shorthand to say, how, why do authors choose the genre they do? What do they want to accomplish with them? Because Genres accomplish different kinds of things. There's some overlap, but there's some distinctiveness that's really helpful to think about. When, a, when an author chooses poetry, they have chosen to uh, a genre that can help them um, tap into the emotions, both of themselves and, mm -hmm. and also the audience. Um, so this emotive cast is really important to the purpose of, of um, poetry. So it doesn't mean it's without content. Somehow it's only emotion and not ideas. It's both and. Yes. Um, but everything is working together for this emotional response. Might that be worship in the Psalms, for example? It might, or it might be lament in the Psalms. Um, there's a sense of self-expression that gets worked out um, with the community in, in the Psalms. Uh, and, and the way they, the, the Hebrew poetry goes about this is through imagery. Now, that's a very common kind of cross-cultural. I don't know if it's universal or not, but 
pretty um, ubiquitous uh, uh, way of doing poetry. You use images, um, and images are very evocative, so they get the emotions going, and they get them, you know, the, oh, that could mean this or that, a deer panting for water, you know, mm. it's very, um, it gets your mind and, and your senses engaged. Um, there are poetic devices, lots of sound devices that we're not going to be able to capture really well in translation from Hebrew to English. So you have alliteration, you know, the Peter Piper picked a peck of peck of peppers kind of thing. That's alliteration, all the beginning sounds. Um, if that's happening in a Hebrew poem, it's hard to capture it fully in English. Although that's another place translators really try to do something with sound hmm. to try to not mimic the exact, um, nature of the sound patterns in a petition, but to say we're in poetry. So sound is important as well. Translators care about that. So in English, you're hearing this poetic feel to it because the sound is so rich and kind of enticing. Um, and then the structures. Again, Hebrew poetry has this parallel balancing of lines um, um, that, that kind of go from line to line um, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise implied enter his courts with praise. You're kind of um, repeating the idea again in a balanced kind of way. That's something that's unique to Hebrew poetry. We can hear mm. it in even Jesus's teachings. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you is three balanced lines. Yeah. That, and Jesus, of course, is a Jewish teacher, so no surprise. Um, so, all of that coming together for this sort of emotive experience. Yeah, that's great. And I think it's, I think if you're tuned into that, I mean, if you're aware that this is the way Hebrew poetry works, then when you're reading the Bible, you can kind of be looking for that. And you can say, okay, where are the, the parallel lines and how are they working together? Are they reinforcing each other? What are they doing exactly? And I think it just deepens your level of engagement because you're tuned into what Hebrew poetry does as a genre. So there you go. It's it's helpful, I think. The other point I wanted to make about what you said already is, I think sometimes we're taught that the Bible is information, right? It's divine revelation. And so you're looking for information in a factual kind of way. And I think just what you said about poetry, that we have to say the Bible also wants to move us. It wants mm -hmm. us to feel things as part of the content. And, and that we don't need to be closed off to that and think of that as something that's not good. That, that the content in the poetry is meant to move us emotionally, and so we should not resist that. We should let that happen and just kind of read it and let ourselves be moved by what we're reading in all kinds of ways. So that's really helpful, I think, for regular Bible readers to be aware of. One thing I do in my book, and without getting into too much theory, I do get into that in my book. I, I use speech act theory to talk about how words, um, in Austin's terms, they both say and do things. Mm. Um, and that the gospel, gotten the gospel writers, so I've been in the gospels a lot, sorry. The <laughs> biblical writers um, do want to impact their audience. Uh, the, first, the first way they want to do it is that they would understand. You know, so understanding that sort of mental under grasp of what's going on is certainly foremost because until that happens, nothing else can happen. But then there are all sorts of other things that um, writers intend their audience to do, understand and worship, understand and lament, understand 
and confess, understand and trust. Um, so I, perlocutionary intention, just a little teaser for the book. I know you'll <laughs> want to run there and read about that one. Um, so the sense that the Bible engages the biblical authors, as all authors really want to engage the whole self, uh, I should say all authors, but generally that's what authors want to do more than right. just one's head. Um, I think that's helpful. So it's not a either or, it's a both end. Yeah, and it's a way of saying the Bible is fully human, right? I mean, in addition to being divine revelation, it wants to engage us as at every level as human beings who know things, but also feel things, are going to do things. And so it's a comprehensive, integrated kind of thing, which is really great that God gave us this kind of revelation. I say to my students, if we walk away from Matthew and say, I got, I got it, I get who Jesus is, thanks a lot. And we do nothing else with the text. Matthew mm -hmm. will be horrified. <laughs> Don't. Now there's much more I want you to do. Um, be one of these disciples. Disciple others. You know, and uh, with all that means, this discipleship is a very rich term and idea in Matthew. So, um, biblical writers are not interested in a just I've understood and thanks very much. Yeah, that is not the point. That's yeah. not the, the only or the deepest point. So tell us, tell us, Matthew is a good point there. Tell us how narrative works in the Bible. What what does it do differently? Yeah, I, I love narrative. I mean, I went to do my doctoral work um, in the Gospels, and I know it's going to be in the, in the New Testament. Um, I, I moved to the Gospels because I felt like my tradition had given me an understanding of the epistles. I kind of knew what to do with the letters. And um, here's the way I thought of them. I thought of them as straightforward, didactic, and then you have narrative, which is not straightforward and not didactic, which I don't agree with much of any of that anymore, i just say. But um, <laughs> I moved to study the Gospels because I had learned of them in little teeny bits. I knew all the stories of Jesus. Couldn't tell you how they strung together any to the Gospel, but I knew all the little stories. Um, and I went to seminary, and I learned from my mentor, Bob Stein, about redaction criticism, which really started to make you think about the whole of the gospel. Now, it did it in comparison with other gospels, its potential sources, but um, it really pressed toward what the evangelist, the gospel writer, um, in their thematic emphases, and it, it was very intriguing. And I went on to doctoral work, wanted to study the gospels, learned more about something called narrative criticism, narrative analysis, which is really about studying the whole of a gospel from beginning to end without recourse necessarily to the sources, but with a good sense of historical context in which this story emerges. And I was, I was just, that was it. I, I was captivated and I thought I want to read the gospels more and more with this holistic sense that they are telling a, a story that's unique. Each of the gospel writers has a unique story. Now, of course, there's overlap and it's the same person they're talking about primarily. Um, but the way they tell the story is so wonderfully unique. Matthew tells it differently than Mark, than John, and than Luke and John, and even the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, somewhat distinctively. Um, narratives have this wonderful ability to mostly indirectly um, give us a sense of what the author's talking about. We have the narrative, narratives, narrators, author's point of view woven through what characters say, sometimes in contrast to what a character says, sometimes in fully aligned with, um, in what the characters do, sometimes in contrast to what they do, sometimes. But it's something we understand. We all know how to get story. We know that when the Pharisees 
in chapter 12 of Matthew say it's by the prince of demons, this one casts out demons. We know they're utterly wrong. We know that's exactly the wrong point of view. And instead, Jesus, by the power of God, is healing people. We know that. Why? Because Matthew has already told us who Jesus is, has set us up to really be able to assess what everyone else says about Jesus, does in relationship to Jesus, um, in a way that uh, uh, rightly assesses who Jesus is, what the author is trying to tell us. It, yeah, so it, 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 narrative isn't rocket science. Stories yeah, are rocket science. And it's intuitive. It's so them. interesting because Matthew doesn't say, by the way, the Pharisees were wrong about this. He doesn't have to add an editorial comment as a factual thing. He just shows us what they're saying and what we know from the story already. We can intuit, oh, they're wrong about that because they're opposed to Jesus. And story works on us in a different way than just stating the facts, like Joe Friday, right? Just the facts, ma'am, right? Yeah. Telling but a story a doesn't help. Yeah, yes. strong point of view that comes through. And, and, I, I think you're right. It there's a way it woos us into mm. believing this Jesus to be who Matthew says he is. All right. So our interview with Dr. Brown actually went a little bit longer than we anticipated, but she's such a wealth of knowledge and insight into biblical genre that we really didn't want to cut out very much of the interview. So we actually decided to split it into two different segments. Episode 8 of the podcast will have the second half of our interview with Dr. Brown. We'll explore how ancient letters work, and also how the Gospels in particular function as stories, and what difference that makes in how we read and understand them. So for the second half of this interview, go ahead and tune into Episode 8. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you on the next one.